Why don't you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're moving through this epistle. The epistle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And we come to chapter 6 verse 5 this morning. What we've been looking at, to just set some context, is we're looking at the Spirit-filled home. The last uh, command before this section that we saw was that we are to be filled with the Spirit. That's chapter 5, verse 18. And being filled with the Spirit or walking by the Spirit really changes every avenue of your life. You're no longer living by the flesh, what your fleshly desires want, but you're living following the Spirit's lead and displaying the fruits of the Spirit. And it affects every relationship in your life. It affects the marriage. We saw that. Wives that are filled with the Spirit submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands who are filled with the Spirit love their wives as Christ loved the church. We even saw how it would affect Spirit-filled children, Spirit-filled fathers. Children are called to obey their parents in the Spirit as unto the Lord, and then fathers are called to disciple their children, to bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. We saw that last week in Ephesians 6, verse 4. So this is a look at the Spirit-filled family, and really it's a lovely picture of what an ideal family is to look like. All filled with the Spirit, loving one another, mutually submitting to one another, honoring and respecting one another. And now if you look down at your Bibles, you'll see the next category of peoples that Paul addresses, and it is, you see there in verse 5, bondservants. Bondservants. That's probably, that's how the ESV uh, translation translates that word, doulos. But the word should really be translated slaves. Now, It seems natural, both natural and unnatural, and if you follow me here, it's both natural and unnatural for Paul to address the next group of people who are slaves. I'll first state how it seems natural. You have to understand slavery in the first century. It seems natural to address slaves because really they are next in line in the Greco-Roman household of the first century. Slaves were a staple workforce in the Roman Empire, a massive economic stimulus. Slaves made up one-third of the population and occupied a position in most households. So Paul is still addressing the household here when he addresses slaves. For us, with our history, obviously the address to slaves is uncomfortable, to say the least. It might provoke a a visceral reaction, especially in today's climate. And this is obviously due to the massive blotch, the 18th to 19th century slave trade is on our history books, and it is carries that word, carries some ugly baggage, does it not? Because of our history, though, 
It is important for us to understand and maybe just give some context here to understand the difference between first century Greco-Roman slavery and the slave trade we might be more familiar with, the 18th to 19th century American slavery. Note these differences because they are significant. And often when we approach the Bible, we bring our own bias and our own historical context to it, do we not? And so sometimes we misinterpret the Bible that way. We have to put ourselves in the mindset of the first century and not carry in our own baggage or bias. Note these differences. First of all, slavery in the first century was more class-based than it was ethnic-based. It was more based on classes than ethnicity. It was a viable work option for the lower class. It was a means to put food on the table, provide shelter, give them a home. Second difference for us to note is that slaves in the first century, in this context, were able to buy their freedom. And most did before they reached the age of 30. So it was more of a binding contract for a period of time that they were able to eventually buy themselves out of. More of a a means of work than it was life binding. Now, those are two significant differences between first century slavery and 18th to 19th century slavery, the slavery that we know. Were people still abused in this system? Absolutely. It was by no means a pretty institution, but it was different than the slave trade that you may be thinking of and you're thinking of in our American history. Now, some have tried to justify the American slave trade using passages like this. Ephesians 6, that addresses slaves and tells them to obey their masters. So they point to passages like this and say, see, slavery is biblical. That is a massive abuse of Scripture. Huge abuse of Scripture. The American slave trade would not pass Exodus 21.16 which explicitly condemns the kidnapping of people and selling them into slavery. It wouldn't pass Old Testament law, much less the New Testament law of love. It is interesting that when Jesus is trying to make the point to love your neighbor, he uses an ethnic man from Samaria to make his point. Jesus himself came in the form of what? A slave. To seek and save the lost. To serve us. And so, the American slave trade does not, is not biblically justifiable. From its very roots, it was immoral and praise God for its abolition. And so, we need to understand here, just with some context, that when we see the address to slaves here, this is different. This is a different context. We can't shouldn't bring our own bias into it. No, it was a slavery of a different kind. It was really, we can look at it and compare it to maybe the lower class working force of today. Um, compare it to employer-employee relationships. That's, how, that's more what this is like. And so the application for us as believers is to apply these principles in the workforce. To treat our superiors in a way that is respectful and honorable, and then to treat those underneath us, if we have the privilege of a position above others, with 
the equal respect and honor that we would want to be treated with. So it was natural, understand with the historical context here, that Paul would address slaves next because they were the next in line in the Greco-Roman household. But it was also unnatural to address them. I want you to see what Paul does here and really what the whole New Testament does addressing slaves. One of the striking features of the New Testament is just how often the authors would address slaves directly. Paul does it several times, and he does it in the book of Ephesians. He does it in Colossians, 1 Timothy, and Titus. He addresses slaves directly. Paul addresses them, or sorry, Peter also addresses them in 1 Peter. Paul writes a whole book to a slave owner, Philemon, pleading with him to exonerate his slave, Onesimus. You have to understand this is countercultural. This is massively countercultural. The fact that Jesus in Philippians 2, would come in the form of a slave was countercultural. You have to understand in this history and context that slaves were not publicly addressed. The Greek Stoics would not even recognize them as peers. It was Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, who said this, a slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. They were property. The lower class, barely human. Very little respect or dignity for a slave in this context. Yet, look at what the Lord does. The Lord addresses them. He dignifies them. He gives them value. He gives them a heavenly position. He calls them one in Christ, Galatians 3.28. He calls them co-heirs in Christ, Galatians 3.29. He calls them freed men and women in Christ, 1 Corinthians 7.22. See, what the Apostle Paul does in our text, what is so striking is he's giving more than helpful instructions to a slave. He dignifies the slave with a renewed perspective and purpose. He says, your value is not determined by men or your social class. Your value of your work, however menial the task, is not in vain. In Ephesians 2.19, he says, you are no longer strangers or aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, Paul gives them a seat at the table. He says, you're just as much a part of this family as they are. You have a role to play too. There's a responsibility for you too, my friend. A spirit-filled slave in the workplace for Christ. He says, let me remind you of who you really serve. Let me also remind you of who your earthly masters ultimately serve. And he ultimately points to a higher master in this text, which just gives glorious purpose and identity to these slaves. So regardless of where we are on the totem pole of our social fabric, regardless of how men determine our value or the value of our work, we can take great comfort and find great purpose knowing our value is determined by Christ. And ultimately, we work for His pleasure, His recognition, His glory. That's what this passage emphasizes. And this is what 
I would like for our perspective to be SBC. This ought to be our perspective and our purpose. Whether we are blue-collar, white-collar, at the bottom rung of the labor force, middle management, or the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, we all serve a higher master. May we be known as those who work heartily, not for earthly recognition, not for status or position or financial stimulus, but for his pleasure and his reward. This ought to be our purpose. And if you have the privilege of a position above another in the workforce, do not abuse that position. Because their higher master is the same as yours, and he takes notes. And he renders justly, each one according to their work. So that's where we're going in this text. And all of that was introduction to kind of help understand the context of this passage. Why don't you look down at the the verses here as I read them out loud. Ephesians 6 verse 5 says this, Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is a free man. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let me pray. Oh, Father, as we approach this text, God, would you humble us underneath your word? Would we receive your word for what it is, authoritative, sufficient, inerrant, May we not only be hearers of the word, but doers. Help us, Lord, to be heaven's slaves, serving our heavenly master. And what a joy that is, God. Help us to find our purpose and our identity in Christ. Even our work would be done to glorify Christ so that you would receive all honor and praise and that we would be a strong witness in our society today. The society that's crumbling and falling apart. Lord, give us renewed purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If I could retitle this section, I would, just as I said in my prayer, I'd call it Heaven's Slaves and the Heavenly Master. Or maybe, to help us understand in our context, Heaven's Workforce and the Heavenly Boss. (laughs) Because as you notice, we read through this text, and it almost is like, it becomes less about your earthly master and more about your heavenly one. It's almost as if the slave, when he obeys his earthly master with the right motive, he becomes more acquainted with his heavenly master. Because this is God's will for them, for us. So point number one, bond servants. You'll see at the top of your outline there, we're addressing the bond servants first. That's what the passage addresses. And We understand that slaves or bondservants made up a large portion of the workforce in the Roman Empire. They were bound by contract. Actually, not 
not far, but could be similar to your working contracts. You often, when you sign with a new employer, you sign a contract. It's a t- terms of agreement between your compensation and your labor. So they had this same opportunity. And they also had an opportunity to purchase their freedom. And again, most did before the age of 30 in this context. Masters, these were estate owners. Most businesses in the first century were family owned and family run. So they were run out of the home. Some masters were good and fair. Others were not. Slaves were considered their property societally, but some did treat them like family. Some would even have their slaves buried in the family cemetery, and they would honor them and and dignify them. But of course, in all systems, there are sinful men and women, and the system was abused. But the command in this passage is clear. It is striking. The Lord, see, doesn't go after the system. He goes after the heart. And he encourages believers to live out their role and their responsibility in the context of the family. The command is to obey. You see that in the text, verse 5? Servants, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. This is the same word obedience that we saw for children. It is to listen under. It is to listen under. They are in a position of authority over you, so you listen under them, and you do as they command. Now, there is an exception to this. You obviously would not obey your earthly master if they were encouraging you to contradict your heavenly one. You would obey God rather than men. Acts chapter 5 is clear on that. But outside of that case, Paul encourages, the Lord encourages us to obey our earthly masters, our earthly superiors. They are an authority over us. And remember, all authority is ultimately given by God. So the Lord has placed them in your life for a purpose for a reason. And our role is again to obey them. Paul gives three modifiers, and they're in your outline, to this obedience. Three modifiers to your obedience. First, he addresses the attitude with which you obey. The attitude. We are called to obey with respect and integrity. Respect and integrity. Where do I get those two words? First, respect. It says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. This is where we get the word respect. It's not, you know, calling for us to be horrified by our masters, but to respect them, to treat them as if they are the authority over us. Treat them respectfully. This is how we would approach the Lord. We would treat him respectfully, and so we're called to treat these earthly masters with a healthy respect. 1 Peter 2.18, I have the verse up here. It says, servants, be subject, same word by the way, do loss, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but even also, do you see that there? To the unjust. Even if they are not worthy of your respect, we are called to still obey them respectfully. We live in a very casual culture, don't we? (laughs) It's casual. We text message our bosses. (laughs) We call them by their first name. We fraternize with them as peers. We make jokes about them in the chat room or the break room. And I'm not saying all those things are bad. Not always. But they are if they are at the cost of a healthy respect and honor. 
You know, you might look at your boss differently if the Lord Jesus was standing right there next to him or next to her. You might treat her differently or him, her, him differently. Isn't that what this text is saying, though? It's saying to obey, look there, your earthly masters with fear and trembling as you would Christ. To treat them in a similar fashion as you would treat the Lord Jesus himself, regardless of whether they've earned it or not. Wow. So we are to treat them respectfully. We're also to obey them with integrity. Here's this other phrase in there. It says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, respect, and with a sincere heart. The Greek literally reads with a single heart, a pure motive. This is not a dual motive or a two-faced obedience. It's sincere. It's genuine and it's pure. There's no hidden agenda, no flattery or no fakeness. You know, it's not saying, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and then walking away, rolling your eyes. This is sincere respect, sincere obedience. Understand that how you act when the boss is watching is the same way you ought to act when he or she isn't there. When you say to your boss's face, what you say to them is consistent with what you say behind his or her back. Respectful, honoring, building up. Titus 2, 9 through 10 says this, bond servants, same word, slaves, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We are to be a trustworthy workforce. The spirit-filled Christian is not a pilferer. They're not a two-faced employee. They have integrity. They're trustworthy. You might work differently if you knew your boss was always watching. You might talk about him differently or her if you knew that he or she was always listening. The, this passage reminds us that it's not just about them, it's your heavenly master. So you obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ because he's always watching, he's always listening. Doesn't matter if your earthly master is not. You wouldn't lie to the Lord's face, would you? You wouldn't try to hide things from God. You can't. Jonah did, and he found out he can't. No, but we want to honor and obey with a sincere heart, as we would Christ. See, our attitudes need to change toward our earthly superiors. We need to see them or look at them through the lens as if our heavenly superior were right next to them. No matter how they treat us, no matter if they deserve it or not, we want to see them as if the heavenly superior, Jesus Christ, is standing with them, giving us the order himself. Because I'll tell you something. They look at you differently. Your earthly masters look at you differently, especially if they know you are a Christian. They see Jesus standing right next to you. And so any mark on you is a mark on Christ. They'll take any opportunity to point out a fault in you and say, see, your Christ is blank. Did you see that in the Titus passage? So that in everything they 
Your earthly masters may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This affects their view of God and who Jesus is. So we have to be very, very careful. See, when we are disrespectful, lazy, difficult, lacking in integrity, it's not just a mark on our name, it's a mark on the name of Christ. We are a witness in the workforce. A testimony of Christ to our bosses. And this is important. So let me ask you, how's your attitude in the workplace? Good or bad? And knowing that it ultimately does reflect upon Christ, your witness. So we're called to obey with respect and integrity as we would Christ. Point number two, the second modifier Paul addresses the real boss, the master. He says, obey unto God and not men. Ultimately, we work to please God and not men. And when we do work in a way that is sincere, in a way that is honoring and respectful, it will please God. And in most cases, please even the earthly master. It will go well for us. Ephesians 6, 6 through 7, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. That's who the slave really is. That's who we are. We are ultimately servants of Christ. That's our identity. We serve a new master, a higher master. And we're doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to men. Who is the real boss? Who's the real master? It is the Lord. You know, uh, business in Hawaii is very casual. High-level executives are not seen in suit and tie, but in Hawaiian shirts, shorts, and slippers, which is what they call flip-flops. Okay. And sometimes they use this to their advantage. My friend was telling me a story last time we were in Hawaii of an executive at the Hawaiian Electric Company. They're like the Southern California Edison of Hawaii. Huge company. Massive utility company. And this company, uh, they were interviewing clients from the mainland for a potential business partnership. And so they flew these clients out from the mainland, first class, for an interview with the senior vice president. Now, typically... You would send an intern or like a, a cab to pick up the clients at the airport and bring them in. Well, this senior vice president decided to pick them up himself in his Hawaiian shirt, shorts, and slippers. He knew that they would not recognize him, and he wanted to ask them questions. So he picks them up from the airport, and he starts asking them questions on the drive. He said, first, how do you like Hawaii? One of them said, eh, could be prettier. Okay. So do you know much about business in Hawaii? One of them said, I know they're slow and inefficient. Okay. He asked, why do you want to partner with Hawaiian Electric? One of them says, it's a huge contract. We're going to make tons of money. And for the rest of the car ride, the mainland clients poked fun at Hawaiian culture and talked about all the money they were going to make when this contract was signed. The senior vice president quietly listened 
It didn't say much more. Now, when they arrived at the corporate office, he sent them to the top floor. He said to the executive conference room, and he told them the senior VP would be with them shortly. He made them wait an hour. And he walked, he himself walked into the conference room, sat at the head of the table with an envelope in his hand. He introduced himself as the senior vice president of Hawaiian Electric, and he slid an envelope of returning flight tickets across the table. He said, mahalo, I hope your visit was good. And he walked out of the room. He sent them home. It's important for us to know who our real boss is who the real decision maker is in the room. It's not the president of your company. It's not management. It's not corporate. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve him. We are all bond servants of Christ. Our services on this earth, no matter their earthly importance or how the earthly masters value them, They are to be performed with excellence, not as to men, but as unto the Lord. We are his slaves doing his will for his glory, ultimately. And so 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's our motive. That's what should drive us. How hard would you work, Christian, if the Lord Jesus were your supervisor? We need to remember that the Lord sees, not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord sees and evaluates the heart of our service. So this puts both our attitudes and our actions in check because God knows. You may be able to skate by your earthly masters with minimal performance. You may be able to impress them with an outstanding performance. But know this. You won't get by the heavenly master with a half-hearted performance. You won't impress him with a performance that's ultimately motivated by a fear of man, greed, or pride. He knows. So when you serve men for the pleasure of men, know this, you are no longer serving Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians 1.10. He says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Choose your master. Who is it? Who ultimately do you serve? What motivates you to work hard, Christian? Is it the head nod from boss? Is it to impress your spouse? Is it the status or recognition among your peers, the employee of the month plaque or the pay raise? Understand this, there is a better reward, a better reward for the servant of Christ, a heavenly reward. And that's the third modifier of our obedience. Look there in the text. We're looking at the third modifier of our obedience, the reward, the reward. We are called to obey for heavenly reward, heavenly reward. Look down at verse eight, knowing, be sure that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. This is not a health, wealth, and prosperity promise. This is a promise, not in an earthly reward, but a heavenly one from a better master. 
This is positive motivation for us. Despite the excess or maybe the lack of your earthly wage, there is a heavenly wage stored up for the faithful worker. You've probably heard of the Walter Mischel experience at Stanford in the 70s. This is the experiment where they brought a child into the room and they offered them two options. They could eat a small treat right there, right then and now, placed in front of them on a plate, or they could wait for double the size, the size treat if they would just be patient and wait a few minutes. And they waited and saw what the kids did. Of course, most of the children, they quickly took the first reward. They took what was right in front of them. But there were some who wisely waited, and they got double the reward. Listen, Christians, we're, we are not much different than those children. We very often are too easily motivated by the temporary monetary gain. Some, for some of us, it drives our life from paycheck to paycheck, from year to year, looking forward to the pay raise, the bonus, the compensation, whatever it is. And we prioritize that sometimes even over the double heavenly reward that the Lord promises us. Some even would uproot their, their family and move for the sole purpose of a pay raise. Some work long, extended hours at the cost of time with their families for the extra spending money. And like children, we jump at the immediate and temporary gratification. gratification. <laughs> Often at the expense of the heavenly reward. You know, something the prosperity gospel preachers won't tell you is that the heavenly reward often comes at the cost of the earthly reward. That's what the Lord Jesus told everybody on the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5, verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Oh boy, give me some of that. Well, you need to read the preceding verses and, and see that that comes after persecution on this earth. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to be patient? Is it worth it to look forward to a heavenly reward over the earthly one? Is the heavenly reward greater and better than the bonus? Luke chapter 12 says that it is. Look at 1233. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure, Christian? Is it in the place that it cannot be touched? Is it in the place where the interest is high? Is it in the place where it doesn't depreciate? It doesn't go out of style, out of date. It will not fail, even in death. Is it in heaven with your heavenly master? We need to be motivated by a heavenly reward. Look forward and higher than the pay raise. This is a spirit-filled work ethic what it looks like to be a spirit-filled worker in the workplace, to obey your masters with respect and integrity, 
to obey unto God and not men, to obey for the heavenly reward, not the earthly. This is what we're called to do. Now, Paul does make a strong statement to the masters. So that's point number two here, the masters. Paul shifts his focus and he looks at these earthly masters and gives them a strong command, I would say, threat. He seems to make a threat for a threat. Look at the text. It says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So the threat, the threat, that, that subpoint there, be fair because God is fair. Be fair because God is fair. If you have the privilege of being in a position of authority, whether you're a middle manager or a high-level executive, or maybe you have one employee that works underneath you, you, master, earthly master, are called to be fair because your heavenly master is fair. Paul says, do the same to them. You see that in verse 9? This is not connected back to the main command of obedience. That doesn't make grammatical or logical sense. This command is connected to and related to the mutual respect and goodwill slaves have toward their masters. And so masters are called to treat them respectfully and with dignity and with goodwill. It's the basic principle of Scripture. Treat others how you yourself would like to be treated. Very much related to the command of love. And how will the earthly masters be treated? Paul warns them at the end of the verse. He says, you're going to be treated without partiality. See, God's not a respecter of persons. Acts chapter 10 tells us that. He does not take into account your earthly accolades, your title, your compensation, your height, your weight, your skin color, your eye color, how many letters come before or after your name? Your degrees, the tax bracket you're in. God does not care about those things. Romans 2 says, God shows no partiality. He says this, for all who have sinned will be judged according to their sins. Know this, masters. Partiality is sin. Oppressing the weak is sin. Abusing power is sin. Treating your employees or those under you unfairly is sin. And God is the just responder to those sins. He's not silent about His justice for the weak and the oppressed. It's all over the Scriptures. God moves quickly to their defense. Look at Deuteronomy 10, 17. God is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Malachi 3, 5 tells us that our heavenly master will be a swift witness against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. 
Psalm 10 says that he hears the desire of the afflicted. He strengthens their heart. He inclines his ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is on earth or of earth may strike terror no more. Justice ends with God. And this heavenly master takes notes on how you treat those people that are under you. There's some negative motivation (laughs) for you to treat others with respect and dignity and honor, to treat them with goodwill, to be merciful to those who are underneath you, to be forgiving to those who are underneath you, to be kind, to be respectful. Because understand this, he will be merciless to those who show no mercy. He will not forgive those who cannot forgive. Take notes of the passages where it talks about the unforgiving and unmercifulness of earthly masters. The Lord brings justice. So be careful, masters. Be careful on how you treat those who are underneath you, that God has placed underneath you, that God has given you the stewardship to care for because the Lord will be a swift defender for them. Masters, be warned. Receive this threat and be cautious about how you treat other people. And I'm thankful that justice ends with God. Aren't you? I'm thankful that ultimately God will bring justice, that it's not up to men, it's not up to governmental systems to bring justice for the oppressed, to bring justice for those who are in need. I'm thankful that it ultimately comes from God who is perfectly just and will punish the sinner. He will punish all of us. All of us have committed various injustices in our life. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God that he provided a substitute, a savior in Jesus Christ. The savior who became not an earthly master, but became like a slave. He lived the perfect life we could not live. He died on the cross in our place as our substitute so that all of us who are unjust, who have sinned against brothers and sisters, our sins can be atoned for, forgiven because of Christ. And he rose again from the dead, declaring final victory over sin and death. And he is our heavenly master, seated at the right hand of the Father. We are his slaves, his servants. And so we want to treat other people the way he has treated us. Let that be our drive. Let that be our motivation to be faithful men and women of integrity in the workplace. Treating others with respect as Christ has so loved and treated us. Look to Christ for motivation in your workplace, even when it's hard, even when your masters are unjust, even when they're not fair, even when they are disrespectful toward you, they don't earn your respect, but you obey and respect as unto the Lord, not for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be faithful men and women in our homes, in our marriages, in our parenting, and in the workplace. Help us to display the love of Christ wherever we go. To love our neighbor as ourself. 
whatever our position, God, and may we do all those things with a pure heart, with pure motive, not to honor and ultimately give glory to men, but to honor you and ultimately give glory to you. God, I pray that our employers or our employees would see Christ in us. That they would adorn the doctrine of God by the way that we treat one another. And that even God, you would use that witness through Summit Bible Church members. You would use that witness to save the community around us. You use our faithful witness to point to Christ and that they would become saved. Help us to be that kind of people. Lord, and we trust you and we depend upon you for that kind of strength to live that way in such a difficult culture. In Jesus' name, amen.